Welcome back to another, yet another episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. We keep going. We're still making these things. And we're only about, That's right. what, two seasons in out of about 50. So <laughs> here we are again, uh, thoroughly, like, uh, incredibly prepared as usual with uh, pages and pages of detailed notes governing what we're going to talk about, uh, which is how we roll. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, this is going to be, this is an exciting episode. We keep following the, um, um, saga of Feanor as he goes around and, um, destroys everything around him and, uh, makes other people's <laughs> lives miserable, which is what you That's want, right. uh, which is really what you want in a good, like anti-hero, uh, central character on a super serious, serious HBO style miniseries. So so this is going to be fun. Uh, we're talking Feanor uh, at Formanos after he's been exiled and uh, what's going on with his uh, family and um, the festival in Valmar and all that sort of stuff. So let's get started. I am, as always, Dave Kale, your co-host, and I'm joined by Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven, and Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Good morning, you two. Good morning. Okay. Um, what now? Before we get any further, I want to I want to start with announcements today because I have a couple really exciting things to talk about. One I've already talked about, but that doesn't make it any less exciting. And the fact that it's getting closer and closer uh, is uh, uh, makes it even more exciting. Um, there are two new uh, so two new opportunities for Tolkien study uh, that are going to be open to the public and th- and that I'm starting uh, very soon. One in December and one after the new year in 2017 in January um, that I wanted to make sure everybody knew about. The fir- first, the one that's starting sooner is the one that I've announced before, but now the official uh, uh, reading schedule and class schedule and everything has been posted and you can register for it on the website and everything. And that is the next Mythgard Academy class, which is going to be on the return of the shadow volume one of the history of the Lord of the Rings volume six in the history of middle earth series, as we've been going through the history of middle earth series. Um, but j- this is just going to, I am so excited excited about doing this. I have never uh, taught my way through these books before. Um, the thing that I have been loving so much about the History of Middle-Earth series that of, of, of you know, sort of examinations and discussions we've been doing in the Mythgard Academy is I have, it is, I love being forced as, I, as this series has forced me to go through and read the entire History of Middle-Earth series cover to cover and back to back and really think through everything of the whole thing. The History of Middle-Earth series uh, and even the History of the Lord of the Rings is something that I've mostly just kind of dabbled around in, right? You know, I've looked stuff up in it and I've, 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 I've you know, read all of it at one point or another. Um, but I've never really done a, like a, a full length longitudinal read of it. And it is such a really interesting view of, uh, of Tolkien's world. Um, oh, hang on a second. I'm, I, uh, <laughs> Oops. hang on, wait, I, I'm having a, I'm having an issue here. Okay. Give me a technical moment. Yeah, Dave, you're recording, right? I am recording. <laughs> Good, I'm going to need your recording. My, I, I, I just messed up my recording with my last second uh, thing there. Anyway, I'll sort that. Um, but um, 
Uh, okay, sorry. Anyway, as I was saying, so The Return of the Shadow is awesome, and um, uh, so uh, what it is, again, for those of you who don't know, this is Christopher Tolkien's compilation of the manuscript history of The Lord of the Rings. So what we will we will join Tolkien as he sits down trying... <laughs> in vain, ultimately, to write a sequel to The Hobbit because the publishers want him to do another Hobbit book. Uh, so he sits down and tries to write a sequel. And, of course, it morphs into The Lord of the Rings. It becomes something which, in his letters, he keeps calling a monster um, because it's, it's, it's transformed into this, into this different thing that is way, way longer than it was supposed to be and everything else. Um, so we will... Um, we're going to we're going to see uh, watch that happen, and it's the 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 early stages especially are such a neat process. Um, and uh, anyway, so I'm I am super excited about this. So this is going to start on December fourteenth, Wednesday Wednesday evenings as 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 they always have been. Uh, Wednesday evening, December fourteenth. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna start. If you go to MythGuard.org, our website, and go to the MythGuard Academy. Uh, tab, you'll be able to find the webpage for the site or for the for the class, which will give you the schedule, the full schedule, and the reading list. Uh, we're going to meet on the, the the 14th and 21st of December. We're going to take the 28th off because I'm going to be at my mother-in-law's house, and I don't really know if I'm going to be able to uh, be free to do class at my normal time. Um, but uh, so so we're we're going to take that week off, the holiday week off, and then we'll be back in January. And we're gonna uh, we're gonna go. This is a long book. The Return of the Shadow is a long book. And I'm, I'm I, I aim to take my time, so we're actually going to meet weekly all the way up until March. It's going to be almost the Gondorian New Year before we finish the Return of the Shadow. Um, so uh, anyway, that's that's uh, that's that's that. It's going to be awesome. It's starting in a little bit less than two weeks. Uh, so definitely look into that. Register for the uh, for the for, for the session, and uh, we're going to be holding that back here on GoToWebinar again. Though that may change. Uh, I'll let you know if I'm going to guinea pig everybody again. But uh, but anyway, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do that, and it's going to be great. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is uh, yet another. Uh, way of like digging deeply into Tolkien uh, here in the new year, um, and this is a this is a brand new thing that I've never announced here in this space before that I wanted to make sure everybody knew about. I have uh, there, several things led to this, but one of the things that really contributed to this is the fact that I haven't taught the Lord of the Rings just like read and discussed the Lord of the Rings for years. It's been basically since I did the Mythgard Academy class three years ago that I, you know, on the, on the, the two towers and return of the King, um, that I've done anything on the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, so, uh, and I, um, I, miss that. <laughs> so I want to do that. Um, so this is what I'm going to do. Starting in January, I'm going to do a chapter by chapter discussion of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. So we're going to, I'm going to go through the entire Lord of the Rings and like all the appendices and everything else, chapter by chapter. Um, and I can't even promise that I'm going to get through one whole chapter in a week. So it's going to take a while. Um, if the return of the shadow class is going to go through, you know, the middle of March, you know, around the Gondorian new year, uh, my Lord of the Rings discussion, which I'm calling exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, like my Hobbit book, exploring the Hobbit, uh, except this is the Lord of the Rings. Cause it's going to be like that, but of course in class form anyway, um, 
that's going to go on for like more than a year. I don't even know when we're going to finish with that, but it's going to be great. So we're going to go chapter by chapter through, but there's an added feature. In addition <laughs> to having this uh, discussion of the book week by week and chapter by chapter through the Lord of the Rings, I'm also going to be hosting those sessions from inside the Lord of the Rings online video game. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to be broadcasting it on our Twitch channel. So you'll be, so you don't have to be playing the game in order to participate in the discussion. You can still just come and you'll hear me talk about the book and you can participate in talking with me about the book. Uh, just like normal seats, you don't, you know, you don't have to be in the game to participate in the discussion. Um, but if you are in the game, um, then you can join me in the game. Cause what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend most of each, uh, session, discussing the book but then at the end of the session we're actually going to like take an in-game field trip and we're going to look at the some of the spots in the game which are connected with the section of the book that we just read so that we can also be looking at the the uh the work of adaptation that the turbine folks have been doing uh on uh on tolkien's work on the lord of the rings so anyway so it's going to be so it's going to be so we're also going to be exploring the lord of the rings in a more literal sense as well uh, uh in game at the same time so um, and again all of that what you'll be able to you you'll be able to to view so if you want to watch me do that and you know so you can see what's going on with the lord of the rings online which i encourage you to do cuz it's really fascinating i i have been playing lotro now for a year and a half and i will say very confidently i think that the lord of the rings online is the most brilliant adaptation of Tolkien's work in any genre I've ever seen. It's better than any film. It's, uh, it's. I mean, it's, it's, it is the smartest adaptation of Tolkien I know of, um, and I really am interested. Therefore, uh, uh, I'm always interested. Therefore, to talk about it. So we're gonna oh, have two and a half uh, years. Them, fighting words. We've been playing for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, two and a half years. You think that's uh, you think that's it, like it the over yeah. on that? Yeah, yeah, probably. That's our. That's our. That's how, no. That's how long we've been playing. Oh, that's how long we've been years. in two and a half years? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It flies, doesn't it? It just flies what? right by. <laughs> okay. And I don't know if there's anybody who actually plays the game uh, listening to this, but we're going to be doing it on every server. So we're going to do a round robin. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm, each server. exactly. I'll rotate among different servers. So to give people from the, who are on different servers, the opportunity to, to kind of come along with me and check things out to you know, go on the field trips and stuff. So anyway, but I do really like this. Like, let me just like my two cents on this is for the folks who aren't playing. I'm, I mean, I, I'm excited for, for, for that because as Corey says, this is really a, an amazing adaptation. I mean, yeah. they, the developers are so committed to staying true to Tolkien's work. And then also, you know, they've studied, I mean, they, Michael Drought, you know, has, has consulted them on the Anglo, on the Rohan pieces, especially the Anglo-Saxon pieces. And so they're very, you know, so not only Tolkien, but being kind of true to, like sort of cultures, and it's really good. So this is an opportunity for folks who have no interest in playing video games, even as good as this one, to really see this game, you know, while the course is going on. So it's a great opportunity. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about it, and we're gonna st- we're gonna hold this on Tuesday nights now, starting in January. And of course, it just so happens uh, uh, by chance, if chance you call it, that the first Tuesday of January is January third, which is which would be Tolkien's 125th birthday. So we're which going to sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we did. We did. Uh, I was, I, I totally pulled an Aragorn when I, when I looked at my calendar and saw that I'm like, I will take this calendar coincidence as a sign. This is what we should be doing. So, um, 
anyway, yeah. Uh, so we're going to start it on Tolkien's 125th birthday, and uh, and 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 we'll go on from there. So if you want, so there's like full immersion opportunities in the Fellowship of the Ring. Basically, you can be on Wednesday nights. You can be doing the Mythgard Academy class on the Return of the Shadow and be looking at how the Fellowship of the Ring sort of grew in Tolkien's mind, and then be discussing the final published version uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring chapter by chapter in the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, sessions. It's going to be really cool. All of these things, of course, both the Mythgard uh, Academy class and the um, uh, and the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, sessions will be recorded and they'll be available through audio podcast and on our YouTube channel, the Sigma University YouTube channel. One other thing I wanted to say about this is that the folks who are attending the, Lord, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings will have absolutely the same uh, ability to interact as they do in a Mythac class. Yes. So it, just because we're in the game, we're actually setting it up so if you're watching the stream, you still have the ability to interact just like you do in the Netmoot. So right. it'll be a slightly different interface, but it's the same thing. So it's going to be basically like doing a Mythic Academy class, only it's in this kind of different venue. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so that's the story. So those are the exciting things that are coming up soon. Um, as well as Mythmoot. Don't forget Mythmoot. Mythmoot uh, registration is also open. Uh, so, uh, so keep that in mind as well. Super exciting. Yep. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, um, Dave, Dave, really, Dave really put excitement into that statement, didn't he? <laughs> Well, just, it just goes just without teasing saying. you. We don't have to sell <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Valinor, Formidos. Okay. So, today, we are in uh, episode 11. So, we are in the anti-penultimate episode of season two. Things are, uh, things are really moving along towards our climax here. Um we will recall the last time we were we got to the point of uh, of Feanor doing the thing which gets him banished. We talked about the scene when he draws his sword on Fingolfin. Um, I suggested the instantly unpopular idea uh, based on my misunderstanding of, or rather Dave's accidental misspeaking, which I still think is, is wonderful, of having Fingolfin be kind of a twit. Not a complete twit, but a little bit of a twit. Um, or at least understandably annoying to his older brother. Um, and I still really it's like an that arc, idea. So he improves. An arc, exactly. He is going. We stay. Yeah. There, the seeds of awesomeness are still there, uh, and we, but we get to show the the. Okay, well, let me change my metaphor. The uh, the 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 sort of uh, to 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 watch the embers of the awesomeness of uh, of of Fingolfin being blown into flame over the course of the next. <laughs> couple series like Ooh. that's gonna be really good um fingolfin the growth of fingolfin is going to be one of the big things that happens in season three um so because you know season three is sort of the, the tragedy of feanor like the final tragedy of feanor um but he's gonna die it's, it's not gonna end with his death season three isn't gonna end with his death it's 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 gonna you know it's it's uh, that's that that that's not the final climax. Fingolfin's going to arrive. Uh, you know that's going to happen in season three. Um, and the, the crossing of the Helcaraxa and everything. So, so yeah, I want to give, and I, I you know I don't just want to do this artificially. It's not just because like, well, we need to give Fingolfin room to grow. So let's like artificially, 
you know, make him a jerk. Um, let's, um, but, uh, but anyway, you know, I, I don't want to, I mean, cause that's, that, that, that would be just annoying. Oh, and let me respond to something actually on this exact same subject. Um, so we were having some heated Twitter debates, Nick and I, after last session. And I wanted, I just, I, I wanted to, to take the opportunity to, because I think this is an important distinction, but I can totally understand how it is not a distinction that would be obvious. Um, Nick was suggesting that what I was wanting to do with Fingolfin is, uh, is just exactly what Peter Jackson did to Faramir and Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings films. Oh, Dem's fighting words. I know, right? Right? Okay. Um, Whoa, Nick. So, uh, and and I can I can totally see the parallel, right? Here I am taking somebody who in Tolkien, you know, whose character is great and high throughout consistently, right? You know, we never see a Fingolfin who is not awesome, um, and uh, and so here I am wanting to like bring him down, you know, several pegs so that we can understand his point of view, and that would exactly I would think be the argument, right, to support both what happens with Faramir, uh, the, with the, one of the things which, of course, so many Tolkien fans find it hardest to forgive Peter Jackson for. Um, I mean, I would, I too would say, like, Faramir and Treebeard would be my two biggest personal beefs with the Lord of the Rings films. Um, and, and, and with Aragorn too, which is not exactly so much of a personal beef, but it's something that I really disliked about the adaptation from the beginning. This whole, like, no, I'm going, we're going to make, uh, you know, Aragorn all, like, doubting his you know, like, oh, no, I don't want to be king. I really shouldn't be. Whatever. Anyway, um, my, what I would say is that what I'm suggesting we do with Fingolfin is, is fundamentally different from that. And, the, and, 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 and let me explain the reason for this. The way in which it's different, I don't... <laughs> the overall trend, and I'm not going to try to... I'm, I'm going to try not to engage in critfic here, which is so tempting. Remember, it's talking yeah, about the Jackson adaptations, which led me to formulate the, con, the, the, the term critfic in, in the first place. Because everybody... It's so natural, right, when you're talking about that to say, well, here's what they're trying to do in the films, and I don't like it. Right? No, you don't know what they were trying to do. Right? All you can know is what did happen. Um, anyway, so I'm going to try. I'm going to try to avoid that, but it is actually really difficult to avoid that. But I'm going to try. Um, what we see in the films is a consistent pattern of the high and the great being drawn down. Uh, uh, to a level that people can relate to, right? So we see a conflicted Aragorn rather than an Aragorn who is, you know, determined, is high, great, and determined to be king from the beginning. Instead, we get somebody who has, you know, sort of uh, what would seem to be more kind of approachable, uh, you know, self-doubts and and uh, and internal conflicts and only sort of slowly and reluctantly, uh, you know, takes his eventual position. Um, and with Faramir, we have a, a very great emphasis placed on his daddy issues. Now, I will give Jackson plenty of credit. Faramir has daddy issues. That exists. Tolkien's Faramir has daddy issues. Remember, Tolkien's Faramir does say, if I return, think better of me, father. Right? There's his sense of his competition with Boromir. Gandalf sees it, right? Gandalf, you know, talks about how, you know, Faramir is, is being driven too hard and, and how Faramir is trying to sort of make up for the that was lost and everything and and anyway it's totally um, that's totally uh, uh, that that's totally 
a thing. However, um, Jackson, Jackson's film greatly emphasizes that and, uh, and, and, and dwells on that. Um, Faramir, I think, is a really great example of what I'm not trying to do, uh, or rather, I mean, I don't know, maybe Jackson was trying to do it and it just failed, I don't know. Um, but what I don't see in Faramir in the film is a really clear, is a really clear development arc. I mean, he's kind of whiny and weak at the beginning, and he's still pretty whiny and weak. He doesn't... The moment when he decides to let Frodo and Sam go at the last possible second after trucking them halfway to Gondor nonsensically is not exactly a real strong moment on his part. I mean, he kind of makes a decision, but I... I I've never been really impressed with that moment as like a moment of obvious growth. Yeah, yeah. It on seems, Faramir's it seems part. less like a decision, more like a shrug of the shoulders. It's like, ah, it's, yes, it's be a lot exactly. Of work to take you the rest of the way. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> a lot of work. I don't think he's just shirking, but uh, but yeah, it's almost like he, you know, like Sam makes his speech and 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 everything, and it's almost like basically what we see is the Faramir caving to a different pressure than the pressure he was caving to before, right? It's not a question of him actually growing and increasing, and even later on in Minas Tirith, when we see him again in the Return of the King film, um, he's not. I mean, like, yes, he he goes out on like the the stupid charge to almost everyone's death. But even that is not exactly a strong moment. He still looks weak, right? Like, you know, instead he's leading his people like, I am leading my people out to my soldiers out to certain death because I wasn't strong enough to stand up to my idiot father who is uh, completely out of control and probably insane already. And so that's not a good look for him either, really, in the film. Um, So in the film, you know, we see somebody who was high and great and who is just made less high and great and fairly consistently less high and great. He's made weak and puny. Um, and, you know, maybe the net result of that, you know, maybe what they were thinking was this makes it easier for us to relate to him. I don't know. But if that was their goal, they failed and they just made him, they just made him a wuss. Um, it's not, um, that's not at all what I'm talking about. The, 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 my goal is not in any way to say we need to make things less high. Um, the, again, that's the pattern that I think you can see in the Lord of the Rings films. We need to take the things that are high and we need to bring them down closer into contact with the experience of the average person. Right Now, there are ways in which I do want to put the experience of the high and great people in the Silmarillion more into the range of our experience. That is to say, to give them emotions, feelings, motivations that we can understand in order to help our audience imaginatively invest themselves in the story as it's happening and really and really, really get it, really feel it. That works very well in some of the more fleshed-out stories that Tolkien told, of course, like the story of Baron and Luthien and the story of Turin Turambar, the stories that he tells in more detail. We, do, we can understand it. We can understand Baron's motivations, his, you know, his, the, the different motivations that drive him, right? We just don't get that kind of information about other characters. So there are other characters that I do want to give that to, Right to kind of one of the things that we're doing, of course, in this whole project, and the points of the whole project was to take a lot of these stories out of the really big kind of chronicle overview that that Tolkien ended up writing them in, and give to them the kind of three-dimensional personality that Tolkien does give to the characters that he fleshes out more in the stories that he told at greater length. Um, 
that's what I want. But it's not about taking the high and bringing the high down at all. That does seem to me the, the pattern in Jackson's films, and I absolutely repudiate that as a motivation or that as a goal. Again, it's not to bring Singolfin lower so that we can relate to him better, um, that I would argue that we should make him uh, uh, that 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 we should make him a little more annoying uh, in the last episode, and not totally um, uh, not totally sort of without fault in the conflict with Feanor. Um, what I the reason, in, in fact, I would argue it's really the opposite, right? That it, we want we want both of them, um, Feanor and Fingolfin, not to be inscrutable to our audience. And in part, with Fingolfin, in part, again, I want to make so that his greatness appears more great, not less, uh, when we when we get to it. So anyway, that's that's my uh, um, that's my that's my. I I I I I wanted to begin with sort of addressing that because I know that's a concern. I don't want and I because I don't want people to get the wrong idea about my Fingolfin idea. Um, and I certainly don't want people to think that that's the sort of the general direction that I'm that I'm wanting to go in that kind of general Jacksonian direction. Um, and I want to make sure everybody understands like I I reject that idea as strongly as anybody else can do. Um, but um, uh, but anyway um, yeah yeah now so listeners are you, are you buying it? Tweet your thoughts at Tolkien Prof. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Dave. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, yeah, so so Murray, I I agree with you. I don't want to make him, uh, you know, uh, Maria saying we don't want Fingolfin just to be like whiny. Does Daddy even love me? I, I agree. I agree. Um, um, and I also would say, by the way, that although Feanor's, although I would kind of like to make Feanor's. Uh, frustration with his brother, understandable, right? Um, and even in a sense justified. I want it to be justified in the sense in which the. Uh, I mean, again, last time I spent a lot of time talking about like my own children, right? And and it's sort of the same way, right? Like when my kids fight, it's not like I, I both of them are wrong, right? Or like it, in any particular situation, they may both be wrong, right? And I may like desire to correct the behavior of both of them, but neither one of them is. I, I, mean, I can understand why they did, you know, why they felt the way that they did, right? Um, that's all I want for Feanor, basically. Not for us to be like, oh yeah, I totally side with Feanor. Fingolfin's annoying. I, I, it's not my goal to have our to put our, our our viewers in that position, of course. But I do want them to be able to be like, you know, I can see like I can see why Feanor would feel that way, but that's not okay, right? That's the place really where I want. Yeah, there, there our are other to ways be. to make Fingolfin flawed without making yes. him whiny. You know, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. not a digital thing. It's not like zero to hero as a, as a, right. you know, either one or the other, you know, <laughs> right. somewhere exactly. along the line. There. It, it, exactly. It's, it's not just binary and, 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 and I'm not suggesting that we make him a zero, uh, as you say. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I think yeah. it makes sense. You know, I mean, it, I think that's one of the things that, as you say, is left out of Tolkien because of the epicness of the story. But I, you know, and I don't want to equate elves to men, but for, for elves, I mean, it's outside my, I, I mean, I don't believe that elves are born perfect. No. You know, I mean, in other words, grief, no. they have a growth, no. 
as they grow, they have a growth experience. And we all know that, I think, well, I mean, I think we all know that, or I believe, first of all, you know, change when there's upset in the space and when there's change and, and, and you have to adapt, that's a growth experience. And making mistakes is a growth experience. You know, right. going, geez, I, you're a real jerk. You know, right. so I think it would be inspiring for Fingolfin to be the big enough elf, you know, to stop at some point and go, God, you know, I've been bad, you know, I've been like really, or, you know what I mean, have a realization at some point that that leads to his greatness. So anyway, that's my two cents on the topic. Yeah, Corey, yeah, exactly. um, I wonder, I wonder, because <laughs> the, the cynic, the cynic listening would be like, uh-huh, that was just a lot of words to, to defend doing basically exactly the same thing they did in the Lord of the Rings films. <laughs> Um, right. I do. One thing I wonder, though, I, I, I wonder if the, there's definitely a difference, right? It's it's even if you're more inclined toward that point of view, you're sort of more cynical and you kind of see this as basically doing the same sort of thing with the character, giving them a little bit more of a story, bringing them down to a more, you know, taking them from a kind of flatter, more epic character and arc to to a more layable one. I, I wonder if the difference, though, is that. Um, that as Trish has pointed out, uh, uh, Silmarillion's written as at, at almost entirely at this sort of epic level, like it's written like 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 uh, a mythos. You know, it's it reads like somebody's distilled version of history that happened right. without a lot of details on the ground. The Lord of the Rings is epic in tone, but it's not written like that, right? Like like Aragorn is is an elevated character and i guess maybe he is being um he you know maybe there is some 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 abstraction going on there but it's not written it's not written like a mythos it's written more like a history it's written from a ground level of a point of view of of very very realistic and flawed characters so mm-hmm. there's a sense in which with with um with the lord of the rings when you when you when you engage in this endeavor you're overwriting details that are there. You're not filling in things that are missing. Um, right. You know, like it's not like, well, we don't really know. You know, we're just getting this like snapshot story of Aragorn. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what was going on with him. So maybe he was having these kinds of struggles and all that. No, that's not the right. case. We we see his story. We know exactly what his story is. Um, exactly. With the Silmarillion, that's exactly. not the case. We don't have enough details. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly. That's that's precisely what I object to about. Jackson's Aragorn, right? Is that like he made he he made up a new story for Aragorn, a new story which is completely alien to the story of Aragorn in the book, you know. And as you say, my objection to that was that it was unnecessary. Aragorn in the book has a good story and a good story that could easily be made to work. Did they want conflict? You can get conflict, right? Did they want? I mean. There are, you know, that there was plenty there that they could have worked with. They chose not to work with it, and instead, to put bring in this entirely alien storyline into it. Right. So and, exactly. And furthermore, exactly. A, a furthermore, a storyline that's you know kind of reads a lot like basically the storylines we've seen about a dozen times before in similar right. in stories. Um, right. Which I think, if anything, is that's what's really disappointing yeah. about it. They, they issued the potential that you've you've um, pointed out 
and went with something that's like, yep, we've seen this before. The we know this works with focus groups. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah exactly. <laughs> the conflicted heir to the throne. The guy who's like, oh, yeah. oh, oh. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's kind of like Aragorn comes from a d- democracy, you know, like his, like as if, as if, you know, his like, I was raised in a democracy and now I'm uncomfortable. I mean, that's kind of what I've always thought, you know, is so Almost, kind yeah. of strange. One of the points actually that Dave makes makes me think of this whole writing as an epic thing, and I'm thinking about in other places, you know, where someone becomes a hero as an adult, their childhood gets rewritten. One of the most obvious ones is, you know, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. I mean, right, right. You know, it's like they, their childhood gets remade. And, and you know, Fingolfin sort of shows up in the Silmarillion already. It's as if, you know, he he, beca- he was a hero and he was this this amazing high king and, you know, all that stuff. And so when the historians are writing the story, which is what the Silmarillion is, they backfill. They backdate yes. his greatness, yes. you know, where we're trying not to do that. <laughs> we're trying yeah. to show what would probably be more realistic in terms of how he was yes. at this point. Yeah, you know? no, that is – that's that, that's that's the perfect way to think about it because it, it is a legend, Right. And, and right. exactly as you say, the way that those legends grow. So, of course, the, 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 the very brief kind of chronicle legends of Fingolfin depict him as being awesome all the way through. Because, like, that's right. the role that he fills in the legends. And that's, it is appropriate that he should be remembered that way. Um, but yes, as you say, even though George Washington becomes famous for his honesty and integrity, as an adult, right? That's part of his mystique, you know, part of his, his legend, even in his own lifetime. Um, Therefore legends of his youth grow up, right? Um, In order to fill in that. So that, that that it gets projected backwards, right? Because he is identified with that concept, just as Fingolfin is identified, you know, with his, with his like nobility and self-sacrifice and, 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 and all that. Right. So you think of him therefore in the legends as this, but, but that's not history, right? Uh, Right. George Washington may well have been virtue, you know, might well have had great, great virtue, probity, and integrity as an adult. But that doesn't mean he was born that way, actually. Well, and you know, right? actually as a young adult, and I, I, I believe this is true, and I need to go, I mean, I read it in, I believe, a, a very credible history book, and I would need to go research it if anybody wants me to do this, but during the French and Indian War, when he was, you know, a young officer and had command, as a result of the of the uh, victory, he was awarded land to parcel out among his men, and he didn't parcel the land out. He kept it. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. and I'm not saying he wasn't great. You know, he right. became great for sure. But it's like as a young adult, he was maybe not so virtuous and honest. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and 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 what could be less surprising than that, right? I mean, right. You know, exactly. No, he yeah. didn't spring forth from his mother's womb like in the form that he was. <laughs> he clearly was. I mean, I have great respect for George Washington right, and everything too. I've ever read and studied about him, but. Um, uh, but 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 yeah. So yeah, exactly. That's and that's. It's part. It, it is a necessary part of really ultimately shifting the genre of these stories, which is what we're doing. You know, anytime you really begin to tell them, not as a, just as Tolkien did. You know, just as Tolkien did when he shifted from uh, from you know writing the over the kind of overview that he was getting in the Book of Lost Tales to the more in-depth story that he was doing in the Children of Hurin and the Lay of Lathian, right? The story of Baron Luthien. 
it shifts, right? The genre shifts, and therefore his whole approach to writing the characters and talking about the action changes. Um, anyway, Which, by okay. the way, I have to do a side note. I told Corey oh. this yesterday. I am listening to Christopher Lee narrate Children of Huron. If you haven't <laughs> done it, do it. It is a treat. It okay. is very that's good. Commercial oh, over. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely true. Are we being anyway, paid okay. For that? So, <laughs> Sadly, no. We keep doing all these free plugs for things. Uh, we should really reconsider our our uh, our, our methods here. Uh, but anyway, okay. <laughs> Let us move forward to episode eleven. Um, well, actually, okay. I have a kind of a bridge topic from episode ten into episode eleven, and that is, what's up with the Valar? Like, what exactly are the Valar doing? And more importantly, how much of it do we want to show? Because this is kind of crucial, right? I mean, we know that the Valar are doing stuff. Right, the Valar are when the Valar are here about Feanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin. They are shocked and appalled, right? And they immediately do some investigation and they figure out Melkor is at the bottom of this. They blame Melkor and they start they start looking for him in Melkor Scarpers, right? So we know that that happens at this point. My question is, do we want to depict that on screen? And, if, and do we want to do that now? There are advantages, and I think potentially some serious advantages, um, to, uh, to not doing that. Um, and several of you were, talk, were talking about this on the discussion uh, uh, forum, which I thought was some really, really great stuff. I think it was um, uh, Marielle, I believe. I'm sure Marie was one of them. Yeah, Marie, of course, as always, always has so many excellent things to say. And Marielle and Hakan had some really great suggestions right. uh, as well uh, this week. But um, but anyways, I really like the um, the I like the idea of not showing it. My, my own impulse is to not show it. Um, I. I I want to not show the trial, which is fascinating, actually, which be, would be a fascinating, not the trial, but the kind of investigative hearing or whatever. Um, I, I, this, is a, this would be a fascinating choice because it would be one of the first times that Tolkien actually did write a scene which we leave out of the Silmarillion. I mean, we've almost never done that before. Um, but this would be one, because in the Book of Lost Tales, it's not in the published Silmarillion, but in the Book of Lost Tales, we actually get like dialogue with, you know, Manway sort of figuring this stuff out. Um, and I kind of, um, I kind of don't want to do that. This is the reason I don't want to do that is again, I'm thinking about the, and I know this is sort of another controversial thing to say that is a, a thing that I've been saying all season two that not everyone has agreed with. Um, another thing Nick and I've been fighting about. Um, but, um, I want to be thinking, I want to be continuing to think about the position that we're putting the audience in and the sort of the frame of reference um, and the, the kind of perspective that we're asking the audience to take and that we're sort of using as the framework for their emotional investment in what happens in this season. I want <clears throat> season two to be mo- almost entirely, <clears throat> almost entirely from the, from the Eldar point of view. Um, and the really important thing here, the important line for us to be walking, the Noldor are beginning to be disaffected against the Valar. They are beginning to suspect the Valar and to grumble against the Valar. And we have two extremes that we need to avoid. 
right? On the one hand, we need to avoid making the Valar look stupid and bumbling, and at the same time, we need to avoid making the Noldor look like sort of mindless jerks, right? I mean, we need to show how people like the Noldor are could come to the conclusions that they end up coming to, right? In a sense, this is kind of like... um, this moment, of course, is like the fall. Tolkien characterized the the you know the the unrest of the Noldor as a kind of fall, like the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, and so, in its way, the 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 thing that it reminds me, the thing that our particular project in this moment reminds me of, is C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, one of my favorite of C.S. Lewis, probably my second favorite of all of C.S. Lewis's writings. Um, second only to Till We Have Faces, which is just absolutely mind-blowingly incredible. But um, but Paralandra is really, really good. And I will, I'll try not to go off on too long of a Paralandra tangent, but the, the concept basically is that he is depicting the temptation of a second Eve. But the whole challenge that he tries to face through that book is... If you have somebody who is genuinely without sin herself, who is without sinful desires and sinful inclinations, how does she come to fall? Like, on what basis could such a person be tempted in any way? And I think that Lewis seems to be suggesting through the book, and I I think if he's suggesting this, that he's right, that a lot of the depictions of the fall presuppose a sinful perspective. Uh, this has been always been one of my uh, complaints about Paradise Lost, about Milton, is that Milton's Adam and Eve seem to me kind of like pre-fallen a bunch of the time. Like they're familiar with ways of looking at things which seem to me to be actually characteristic of a post-fallen state. Milton doesn't seem to me to... He imagines a paradisical world, like a world without troubles, but he doesn't really seem to to invest himself in imagining what would the psychology of a person who is genuinely not tempted to do anything wrong look like. Um, And Lewis tries to do that in Paralandra, and I think with with really, really interesting success. But again, so the, the question is, how can you make this person both convincingly good and smart, right? In, and, and yet end up choosing, or in the case of uh, Lewis's Paralandra, almost choosing to do wrong, right? How can you get from A to B in that kind of a situation? And it's a really fascinating uh, sort of imaginative undertaking that Lewis does in Paralandra, which I think is super awesome. In a sense, we're doing a similar thing, right? We need to show the Noldor need to be legitimately great, right? And not just legitimately great in the sense of being powerful and able to do lots of stuff. They're brilliant, right? I mean, the Noldor are really, really smart and learned and everything, and they're hanging out with the Valar. They know the Valar personally, right? This is not just a mythology that they've built up, right? They're, they're, they, they, they walk with the Valar and have learned from them. How can a brilliant, learned people with personal experience of the Valar come to the conclusions about the Valar that they do? That is one of the challenges that I think if we don't, if we don't pass that challenge, if we don't accomplish that, then the story is not going to be really convincing. We're going to make the Valar just look weak, right? We're going to end up making the Valar... Uh, just look kind of, they're flawed from the beginning, right? They just, um, um, they were bad eggs, right? The, 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 you know, the, the, 
um, the Vanyar are not bad eggs, right? Um, but the but the but the Noldor obviously they were going wrong from the beginning, and that I think is a, would be ultimately would be kind of an intellectual cop out. I don't think that's the situation that Tolkien describes. I think, therefore, in order to bring our audience to kind of wrap their minds and their imaginations around this idea of how it is that these brilliant these brilliant sub-creative people could go wrong and could end up um, with not just a theory but a conviction that the Valar are doing them wrong and that that it is right and righteous for them to rebel against the Valar and to leave. Uh, Valinor. That's the position we need to get most of the people. Not Feanor, right? Feanor's got uh, got other issues, right? But most of the of the of the Noldor, the Noldor who are listening to Feanor, have to at least in part be of be convinced that they are um, um, that they are uh, that the Valar are in the wrong. What I would kind of like to do, therefore, that it seems to me the most efficient way to do this is to to basically immerse our viewers in the point of view of the Noldor, right? So that our viewers can understand how it looks from the Noldor point of view. I think if we cut to the Valar at this moment and we show the Valar being judicious and see and 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 compassionate and trying to understand and if we basically if we give our viewers a really strong solid reminder that the Valar are not against the Noldor, right? That that the Noldor are in fact wrong in the in all of the. I'm not saying we never do this, but if at this moment we cut and show that the Valar are really great people and wise and doing the be- best thing that they can, I think that we kind of lose that a little bit. It makes it harder. Then when we return to the Noldor, I think it's going to make them look more childish and more petulant. It's going to be harder to hold. Um, to, to kind of hold on to that sort of visceral understanding of like, yeah, I totally see where they're coming from here. That's why all along I've been arguing that I want to depict Melkor in a way that is cons- that would be consistent with an interpret. Not that I want to show him being really good or actually recuperate his character, but again, what I want to do with Melkor is I want our viewers to understand how it is that somebody could, as the Noldor do, accept him and embrace him and believe that he's fine, right? I want, I, I want that to be... Um, so I want to bring our viewers to a place where they can see why the Noldor would have concluded that Melkor was sort of safe and trustworthy. And I want them to... I want our viewers to come to the place where they can see why the Noldor would have distrusted the Valar and come to believe that the Valar were doing them wrong. And therefore, I kind of, I don't want to break that, um, uh, and I that's why I don't want to cut to the Valar in the middle of this. But I've been speechifying for a while. What do you guys think about that? Uh, that seems reasonable. Uh, the devil will be in the it, 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 the devil will be in the details, right? Like our execution, because yeah. we don't we don't want the um, we don't want the Valar to come across as either incompetent leaders or buffoons or nefarious. Right. Um, um, uh, like, I, I mean, I, 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 this, the conclusion I, that they are nefarious has to be plausible, has to look plausible. Uh, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the balancing act, right? Like, exactly. We want, exactly. We want Melkor to seem, we want 
the belief that Melkor is actually not such a bad guy to seem reason, you know, to not seem like complete ma like madness or, you know, we don't right. want the right. Noldor to come across as idiots. Um, and uh, we want the Valar to be sort of, we want the, the view that the Valar are kind of, um, you know, sort of haughty and, um, or maybe at least somewhat misguided uh, to be plausible, but not, but not, you know, just directly portrayed that way. I wonder, um, I wonder if, if, if as a guide for this goal, that, that this is a, this is a case where um, we need to, or this is a case where like, we're like looking closely at the text can be instructive because, mm -hmm. because some of these things, not all of them, but some of these things fall directly out of the Silmarillion. Like the, the interpretation that the Valar kind of, you know, that, that in some sense they're on this, they have this righteous mission or goal, you know, to, to, to commune with the children, to bring them over to Valinor, etc. But it's not that hard to read it and come away with the impression that that was the wrong thing to do and they screwed up, right? Like, like it's not like we're making something up. It's there. It's in the text. It's, 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 mm -hmm. it's not a, a stretch at all to, to pull that reading out of it. So, um the Melkor thing is a little, is not, that's an example of something that's not directly in the text, right? Like, because he's very explicitly discussed as conniving and evil and meddling. and Right. To the, to, to the readers, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we are asked to accept, um, and in the book we accept on faith, and it's easier to accept on faith when we are told about it in the course of one paragraph. Right. Um, but we're asked to accept on faith that he doesn't appear conniving and evil to the Noldor. Right. That they that they believe in. Yeah. Um, and that that doesn't make them stupid. Right. But again, it's easy. Like I can be told that concept. Right. He deceived the Noldor and they trusted him. Right. I'm willing to accept that um, when I'm just told that in a mm -hmm. couple sentences. Right. And then we move on to other events. But if we're going to actually show that. If we're going to depict a conversation between Melkor and you know the Noldor and show the Noldor talking about Melkor and the ideas that he's planting in their heads, if we really need to again shift the genre like we were talking about before and settle down there, we need to 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 work that out. How can we do that without just undermining the Noldor at all points? Um, uh, and because that's kind of what happens. I mean, think about. Think about Shakespeare in Richard III, right? Richard III has all of those, like, villain monologue asides, right? Uh, Richard III is always turning to the audience and explaining to the audience what a villain he is, right? Um, and one of the effects of that... Now, uh, you know, Shakespeare is doing some other really interesting things with that, but one of the effects of that is that it, it makes the other characters look more like fools, Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, that's, in fact, at times explicitly what Richard III emphasizes, right? He turns to the audience and he's like, what a fool that guy was that I just deceived, right? Um, but, but see, the difference there is that Shakespeare is like the purpose of the film. Our sympathies aren't supposed to be with the fools, <laughs> right? I mean, it's the tragedy of Richard III, right? We're supposed to be focused on Richard, and so Richard keeps his focus. But this is, we don't want this just to be the tragedy of Melkor. We don't want this just to be the story of how Melkor, like, uh, how Melkor deceived the Noldor. We want this to be how the Noldor were deceived by Melkor, which is a different story, right? Um, so, anyway, I, I, I uh, uh, that's, 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 um, 
Now, uh, you know, Nick, you were talking about losing the tragedy. I don't think we lose the tragedy at all. Um, we do go back to the Valar. It's going to happen, right? We do. We are going to show that the Valar were right all along, that the Noldor have been deceived, that there, is, there, there will come a moment when we need to sort of uh, pull back that curtain, right, and show what's really been going on. And when we do, that will emphasize the horrible tragedy of where the Noldor have gotten to, right? I just argue it's not yet. And the tragedy will be more poignant when we follow the Noldor, right? And we can, if, if we can, if we can see, oh, like I can totally see how they got, how, how they trust Melkor, right? And his, the things that he says are totally plausible. And given this and given what we see the Valar doing and not doing, Maria, as you were just saying, um, the, one of the biggest issues, the, you know, Maria says the biggest mistake the Valar make is not sharing their thoughts with the elves. They keep their own counsel and that's suspicious to the Noldor. Exactly. Um, that's another reason I think I don't want to go to the Valar because, of course, the big, the, the mis- I, I agree as Marie says, the mistake that the Valar make is to do nothing, right? Not to be more open, not to come and talk to them, to leave the Noldor to draw their own conclusions and interpret things, you know, like on their own without more information, right? And in the absence of the direct information that the Valar could give or could have given about, you know, the secondborn, for instance, about the coming of men, um, the Noldor draw conclusions and the conclusions that they come to and are led to by Melkor are perfectly plausible. They fit, they fit, the, they fit the, the, the facts, they fit the data, right? But then later on, we we do show the Valar, and we do reveal how how tragically mistaken the Noldor have been all along. And at that point, I feel like that in retrospect, um, you know, being able to 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 go along with the Noldor through the course of their fall, and then only after it's happened, um, and you know, like the die has been cast, right, and it's now too late for them to take it all back. Now is when it's revealed to us in in its fullness, you know, with, with, with strong emotional impact, the tragedy of this whole thing. Um, I think the time is coming for that moment, but I think that the, that that moment, um, needs to be, uh, needs to be later. And, uh, and I would say, uh, Nick, I would say this actually isn't the moment when it happens in the Silmarillion. Um, the moment when it happens in the Silmarillion, uh, is, is, is like, cause not for the Noldor, right? Cause the Noldor don't, still don't get the Valar still don't really reveal their full counsel to the Noldor even at this point. Right. Um, so, I uh, so when does the, I, I, my, 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 I, I will argue, will spoiler, I'm going to argue that we start that process of, of peeking behind the curtain at the Valar and what's going on with the Valar in the next episode, in episode 12. I want it to begin happening before the end of this season because I want the, I think that the, the, the tragedy of the darkening of Valinor, if we can parallel that, if we can parallel, which I think is, is, is parallel. And I think Tolkien does establish a parallel between the unrest of the Noldor and the darkening of Valinor, right? Like, you know, the, the darkness of understanding and, and, and rebellion has come to Valinor. Um, the extinguishing of the trees is like an outward sign of the darkening that has already occurred in Valinor. And I think that we can really establish that parallel. Um, so we need to be emphasizing what has been happening to the Noldor, what is, what is happening to Feanor personally and to the Noldor in general. Um, that is a darkening 
of Valinor and uh, and what's going to happen in episode 13 with the actual destruction of the trees is a sort of outward manifestation of that. Um, so yeah, episode 12 and 13 is where I think we really begin to 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 point to that tragedy explicitly. But episode 11, I think we're still not there yet. I think we still want to stick within the point of view of the Valar, especially because um, what's happening with Finway what's happening with Feanor when he's in Formanos, his conversation with Melkor, I still want to be fully, thoroughly invested in the Noldoran point of view at that point so that we can be, um, so that all, all the things that Feanor might say, all of his like doubts and fears about the Valar should still seem totally plausible and, and be as yet unrefuted by us any more than Melkor's trustworthiness has yet been explicitly refuted by us in our depiction. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Nick is asking about the moment when the Valor discover Melkor is behind all this and Tolka storms out to go, to go out after him. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the moment that I'm suggesting we either delay uh, or do in um, or do only, even I mean I'm even contemplating the idea of doing it in flashback. Um, here's what I'm thinking. Episode ten ends with Fanor being informed that he's banished. So Aonwe shows up and informs him that he's banished. Again, I want to stick with what the elves hear and see, right? And therefore to enable us to come alongside them in drawing the conclusions that they come to, right? So that we can see, given the information they had, how plausible their, their conclusions actually were about the Valar, right? Um, so I don't want to show the conclusions that the Valar are coming to or their motivations for banishing him. I want the emphasis to be on how Feanor and Finway and Fingolfin interpret the banishment, right? How they understand the significance of the banishment. For now, Episode 11, post-banishment, I, I, I'm thinking episode 11 takes place either entirely or almost entirely in Formanos, right? So again, we just shift to Feanor, and there we are with there's Feanor and there's Finway, um, and we're out in Formanos, and they're talking and thinking about the Valar and what the Valar did. I don't think we even... And so when Melkor shows up, I don't even think we necessarily know yet that he's on the land. We can go back and cover that. Again, in episode 12, we can revisit the Valar, and we'll talk next time about whether we really want to do this or how we would want to do this. A uh, little spoiler to one of my questions for next time. But, um, but, and so, you know, so when we return to the Valar point of view, we can go back and show, if we want to show Tolkas going out after him and stuff, I think we can still do that. But again, I want to stay within the scope of knowledge of the Noldor here. Like, Fanor's not going to be there when Tolkas jumps up and goes chasing out after him. Um, I think it would be even more effective if we, we have Melkor showing up at his door and and Fanor doesn't necessarily know that anything has changed. He doesn't know he's on the lamb. Right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's my, that's my suggestion. Th- thoughts about that? Sounds like a reasonable plan to me. 
Uh, I mean, I think I do. I do kind of like the idea. I think. Um, I think the alternating viewpoint uh, um, kind of uh, gimmick actually can be very effective when done in a appropriate way. I don't know. Have you ever seen? Um, have you ever seen the show The Affair? It's on. No. I can't remember Showtime. I have one of those stations. But it's a. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's like a kind of a you know uh, uh, conflict laden romance uh, about a couple having an affair. But they do mm-hmm. even within a single episode, they'll do um, inter- they'll they'll cover an entire arc story arc from one specific character's point of view. Then they'll rewind and go back to the start of that that um, sequence of events, and then uh, portray it from the other character's point of view. And they're right. they're they're relatively extreme about it. They will just show like conversations that just are completely different. You know, because that, right. as far as that person's concerned, the entirely different set of things were said. Right. Somebody else's right. behavior was completely different, and it's yeah, it's actually works really quite well. Like you will find yourself watching a, you know, you watch a sequence of events and you think like, wow, that person was a real jerk, and this poor person got treated badly, and then you go back and you watch <laughs> right. it, and your sympathies completely flip. Right. So, right. Yeah, that would actually be an interesting way to do this particular episode. That would be fascinating. I mean, I don't know that we yeah. that we want to go that far. Yeah. But I. But that's the effect for the viewer. That's exactly the. the I, that's what I think would be most effective for the viewers. Mm-hmm. If if we can bring them to a place where they at least, again, not that they have to be. It's not that I. I, I think we. Where our goal is to bring our viewers to like be like hoisting, uh, you know, uh, torches and pitchforks against the Valar at this point. That's not what we want to do. So, but, but nevertheless, that they would be like, yeah, I totally see where Feanor's coming from here. Like, I can see, I can see wh- why he feels the way he does about his annoying little brother. I can, uh, I can see why he, you know, his conclusions about the Valar are totally plausible. I can see why Nerdanel likes Melkor. I can see why others trust him. You know, and and then. But then when we go back and we do pull the curtain back and we do show both what was really going on with the Valar and what was really going on with Melkor, because both of those things are going to be revealed before the end of season two, then, as you say, Dave, that, that suddenly everything switches, right? And we don't actually redepict scenes necessarily. Yeah, but, I don't think that's um, necessary, but I just think if you – if we had like – you know, if we did the events of Formanos um, uh, or the events leading up to Formanos and then scenes in Formanos that are entirely from the point of view of elves and maybe even specifically like the inner circle of Feanor's inner circle where the, the, the audience kind of comes away thinking like, boy, that's, you know, those guys really got the shaft and those high and mighty uh, Valar sitting on their cushy little thrones are just kind of, you know, they're tyrannical. Uh, but then you show, you know, uh, uh, in a later episode, a different series of events, but it's mostly from the point of view of the Valar and you watch them kind of, you know, struggling to sort of deal with everything that's going on and, and that, you know, you see that their intentions are entirely um, benign and that, right. you know, the, the, that they really just kind of want everybody to get along and people refuse to cooperate. And you kind of, you know, like, I think you can, you don't need to redepict events to, to have people kind of view, view those events in a different way based on what you right. see people doing later. Right. right. Now, the other thing that, um, and this may be a tangent to what we're talking about right now. Um, I've been thinking while we've been talking about this is how we've been depicting the Valar. Mm-hmm. 
and it seems like to me, you know, through season one and whatnot, I mean, we have been showing them as being, you know, obviously fallible and and uh, questionable sometimes. So I think, you know, one of the things we, I, I mean, I don't think it would be difficult to to convey what we want to convey in this episode and be consistent, right, with right. how we've depicted them. Right, um, I agree. And as Marielle was just saying, you know, she says, don't forget, we did spend the previous season establishing the exactly. value. We ought to have a degree of goodwill saved up for them. So, yeah, but see, the, 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 the situation that I think would be a really cool place to put our viewers, our viewers know that the Valar are good, right? But so did the Noldor, right? So what, what we're basically asking of our viewers in, main, in strictly maintaining the Noldor in point of view throughout is an act of faith, essentially. Right, um, like okay, viewers, don't forget what you know about the Valar, right? But you're going to have to have faith without actually seeing what they're doing and why they're doing this, right? Uh, seeing only what the Noldor see, if you are resistant to their interpretation and you believe that they're doing wrong to the Valar, it is only like based on your faith in the Valar, your memory of what they of what they were like, and your your belief that they're not really that that the Noldor must be wrong in their the interpretation they're, that they're coming to. I think that's cool, and and Mario, I agree. I don't think that will be a difficult act of faith necessarily for them to do, and so I don't, I don't think in doing this in in doing the Noldor point of view, we're genuinely undermining the Valar any more than we're genuinely puffing up Melkor in showing him as being plausibly trustworthy. Um, instead, what we're doing is is making the Noldor themselves uh, uh, sort of respectable. I was going to say believable, but that's not even right. Respectable, really. Um, and that their their way of looking at things is, is, is plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's think about... Let's get into some more of the details then of episode eleven. If we if 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 we can proceed on the premise that we're sticking to the Noldoran point of view, what exactly does happen and what do we show in that point of view here? So first big questions. Who's it forming us? Um, and by the way, side note, I don't, I don't want to talk about it too much because I think uh, every, the people in the discussion forum, are, I, I have very little to add to it. Um, and it's the kind of thing we'd probably come back and talk about more in our post-production episodes um, uh, anyway. But like what does Formanos look like and everything? You guys were having a great discussion about this. I totally agree. It should definitely have walls. Like it should be a defensible place. It should be a stronghold um, uh, rather than a you know, and not like a pleasure palace. Um, you guys had some really good ideas uh, about that. But anyway, um, so um, I, 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 so who's there? Who's there? So f- we know Finway's there. We know Feanor are there. Those are the two things that we definitely know. Um, the big question that was raised very appropriately on the discussion boards, does Nerdanel go? Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Do we want the breach with Nerdanel to happen now we we know they're gonna they're going to become estranged. Has it happened yet? Is this the moment? Does she draw the line and say, "I'm not going into exile with you, jerk. You cross the line," or not? Mm, I'm against. I, uh, first, my first first reaction is against. I, I think not yet, because this is yes. This is you know we're calling it exile, but they're just they're just going out to their their um, country homes, their country estate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I think it. I think I think the 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 the, the real. It's gonna be my. Uh, 
I don't know. Uh, can I we think see we... her beginning to get annoyed? We can see her beginning. To oh get yeah, annoyed. yeah. Oh yeah. I, I I think they're not on the same page. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Um, I mean, which of course makes obvious sense. I mean, we don't want the moment when she does become just to be like her flipping a switch, right? I mean, we do want to be building up that. um, So maybe we need an argument or you know some conflict between them, a scene in this episode. Yeah, but I so I I do think she should be there. I, and 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 here's my big positive reason that is uh, not a negative reason like the reasons I don't want the breach to happen now, but the positive reason why I want the breach to happen later. Um remember we were talking about Galadriel and the different Galadriels and you know we talked some last time about wh- how we want to do Galadriel and what position we want to put Galadriel in. And I talked about the role that Tolkien gave her later on in his revisions, which did not make it to the published Silmarillion, in which Galadriel is like openly standing up to Feanor and speaking against him <clears throat> from the beginning. Like she never sides with him and goes along with him at all in one of those later versions. Um, <clears throat> I think, and I, I might have even said this last time, <clears throat> if I did, I'm just agreeing with myself again. I think that we give that role to Nerda now. Um, she should be the one who speaks against Feanor at the time, like in the the you know the mm-hmm. the 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 speeches by torchlight when the oath is going to be sworn and Feanor is going to say let's go let's leave and 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 take off. I think there it should be Nerdenel that should be the one speaking against him, and that's the moment when the breach comes. That's mm-hmm. the time when Nerdenel is like, "Husband, we are done. Like if you walk out of here, like I'm staying." I'm not going to rebel against the Valar. If you're rebelling against the Valar, goodbye, husband. Right? That's right. that should be the moment. Um, <clears throat> and because again, I like the idea of having somebody in the role that Tolkien put Galadriel in. I just don't want it to be Galadriel because I want Galadriel to be in the role he put her in earlier on. I think that that works much better and fits better with what we see of Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. So, um, so I don't want it to be Galadriel. But I, but so yeah. We we have uh, uh, we have Nell. Yes, yes, Marie. We have her speak up against him in Tyrion, um, uh, and and so that that's when I want the breach to come. So she, I, I think she goes into exile. But Marie, I agree with what you posted on the discussion boards. Uh, I think that we have Nell with Feanor in exile, but like they're already sleeping in separate bedrooms at this point. Like they, they're not getting along, and she's not happy with her husband. And she, you know. We could even go so far as to depict it as if she has gone with him to Formanos mostly to try to talk some sense into him and uh, and to, to to try to kind of bring him to, to reason. So that makes sense. I mean, speaking from experience, yeah. breaks like this do happen over time. They don't yes. suddenly, you know, happen. Right. So right. I think, you know. Yeah. Um, was there something I was going to say? Shoot. I thought there was going to say, but I forgot what it was. Okay. Oh, stepmama. We're gonna have stepmother there. I assume so. Indus, yeah, I think she would go along. With, she would, you I know, mean, go with her husband be, too. Yeah, she'd be living there. Yeah, because they're not estranged. No, though like she and Fenor are. Boy, that's a right. fun quartet out there in Formanos, right? Like, can you imagine family <laughs> dinners with like Fanor, Nerdanel, Indus, and Finway, right out in Formanos? Girls against boys. <laughs> Talk about awkward, right? Yeah. Um, now, yeah. What would you talk about around the dinner table? I don't know. <laughs> Maria is saying that Indus should not be invited to Formanos. You know, I can go in with that, but that brings us to our next question. Um, if we agree that Nerdanel is there, but things are tense, and that she's already going to be speaking against Feanor, at least in private, right? She's not she's not standing up to him in public or separating herself from him publicly, but she is um, she is uh, she's already speaking against him in private. 
if we go that direction, what do we do with Finway? How do we do Finway's character? This is one of my questions for this time. Um, uh, because Marie, the, 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 Indus's presence has to me a lot to do with this. If, if, if Fanor says Indus is not invited to Formanos and Finway goes anyway, that says a huge thing, right? I mean, if Finway's like, I can't bring my wife. Well, well, my son says I can't bring my wife, so I won't. I'll just go and follow him. I'll choose my son over my wife. Like, that's a big step, right? And I, I is that a step we want to take? Um, I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. So, okay, so. I think Nerdnell has a role to play, you know, and remember back when we're talking about, you know, Wait, when, Indus or Nerdanel? Uh, I'm sorry, Indus. No, mm-hmm. Indus. Sorry, Indus. Indus. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh God, I'm, I'm, my brain is not working. So, <laughs> so Fanor's mom, when she dies, right? We were having this deal where there's like this vision that she shares with Indus. Remember about yes. trouble to come, and then yes. did we? I think we agreed that Indus tries to tell Finway that, and Finway's like, no, 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 or he, you know, he's like in denial. Yeah. So I mean that's going to come back to kind of haunt them, right? And this is the start of that. I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, so not having Indus there, you don't have that ability to sort of. She's not going to say, "I told you so," but I mean. No, but but she should certainly say, "Like um, this is it, right? Okay, like yeah. it's happening now. Like this right. is the thing that 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 Muriel foresaw." Right. Yeah, that conversation right. has to happen between her right. and Finway one either before he goes. Right, you know, when right. Feanor is banished, Indus and Finway have to have this discussion prior to his departure, right? Or, or it happens at Formanos, right? He goes right. with Feanor, and Indus comes to him because now Indus is going to be divided, right? I mean, her kids are going to be in Tyrion, right. and her husband right. is going to be in Formanos. So, you know, she she obviously, you know, Plus she has, son has been directly places. impacted. Exactly. You know, exactly. But, so. You know, I think this is a thing that Nerdnell could – this could be a thing that Nerdnell tells Fanor, you need to invite her. I don't care that you don't like her. That's not the right thing to you – know. in other words, she could have a position about that Fanor needs to invite her. Tough noogies, you don't like her kind of – you know what I mean? I mean she could have a reason for saying that because I'm, I'm thinking having her there is kind of – I mean I think there's a use. I think there's a role for her to play at Formanos in this. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it does seem that that role would be, has to be Finway centric, right? I mean, she's not going to be about Fanor. I mean, I think even right. if she, right. even right. if she initially sort of takes the charge from Muriel and, and tries to do good to Fanor, you know, like that ship has sailed, right? She's not, she's right. not going to, but she is going to be focused on Finway and trying to warn Finway and caution and, 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 uh, you know, sort of advise Finway in this, because this is a this is sort a of a melee into the Fanway single sort of yes yes and that's actually a really good parallel to establish I think because it seems like it's hard for me to see this this what happens here that is it's hard to see Finway's the solidarity that Finway shows to Fanor in any way other than a sort of a a a Fingolian, uh disregard for the wisdom of his wife right, right. I mean like it's that's. I, I, at the end of the day, I can't think of Finway's decision to leave Tyrion and go with Feanor to Formanos as anything but a bad idea. I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think, I think he was wrong to do it. Um, I, I mean, it's, 
it's cons- I, I, I guess if I really applied myself, I can imagine a way in which it was like noble and wise for him to do it. Um, but it just, that doesn't feel right to me. I, I, I think this is foolish. I think this is a wrong decision for Finway to do that. And so, yeah, having that role where, where Indus is warning him, right? Indus is saying like, this is what Muriel foresaw. Um, this disaster is coming and you're doing it no favors uh, in this choice that you're doing and have him choose anyway to go, not just because he's weak. That's, I think the huge risk, right? The huge risk is that we make Finway look absolutely um, uh, limp, you know, in this episode, right. just going along with Feanor. Um, but, but instead, I think we, um, we can have, um, we can show him making what is going to be in the end a foolish decision, but a compassionate decision, right? His desire not to obey. He doesn't want Feanor to feel that everybody's against him, right? right? right. Um, right. That it's just like, Fe- that, that, that he's just, Feanor feels persecuted, Right, he feels persecuted. He feels rejected. He feels that he is big, his rights are being abrogated. Right, he feels that you know, uh, uh, and Finway doesn't want him to feel that way. Finway doesn't want him, doesn't want to appear to confirm what um, what Feanor is here sort of suspecting or concluding, and so therefore he. Um, uh, I also, if we can get a scene in uh, between Fingolfin and Indus, where Fingolfin questions her, "Why are you going? You know, this is crazy. You know, you should stay here. I mean, you, you didn't know. You know, and she could explain. I mean, we'd have, you know, she could somehow explain. I mean, in a way that that, that it reinforces Finway's not being a wussy. Right. And I'm not sure how right. that would happen, but I mean, well, I think that would be a natural thing where Fingolfin would be like, "Why are you going? Right. Um, well, here- Here's the other. Here's the other. What exactly is her advice? What does she want him to do? What would be the right choice for Finway to make? I know what would be the right choice for Finway to make. (laughs) See if we go to the freaking Valar and ask them what the heck's going on. Oh, that's true. Like she, she could be like, "Look, are you the king? You're the king, right?" Aren't you the king? Go to ask Manway, right? Um, go discuss this with Manway. Seek an audience with Manway and go and and, and you know that um, right. That should right. be what he does. But instead, we crest, he just, we crest their intercession. Instead, he just is like, no way. I know. Like, I mean, he must be proceeding on the the premise that he knows what they're thinking, right? And he's wrong. But he must right. be proceeding. And and now, several people have pointed out. Uh, you know, Marie was just talking about it. Now, uh, several people talked about it on the discussion boards as well. The idea that Finway, um, in the in the text, he he considers himself unkinged uh, while his. Uh, while his son is exiled to Formidos, um, which it's possible to read that. I would even go so far as to say it's easy to read that as an almost petulant thing for Finway to say, right? Um, uh, that, oh, that line always kind of, I'm not saying that this is the only or even the best way to read this, but, uh, but that line always sounded to me a little bit like then I'm going to take my ball and go home kind of attitude on Finway's part. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, well, if you're going to banish my son, then I'm not going to be King anymore, you know? And then he storms off. Right. And I, that's not a good look. Right. Um, no. <laughs> so, uh, so what people were suggesting was maybe 
he because as and as people are suggesting and as Marie was just pointing out, they are stepping into his ground. Like by banishing Fanor, they are kind of you know he could have an argument to say like wait hang on a second am I king or am I king here right like you just banished one of my subjects isn't he my my son my my son like my my firstborn son is he is he not at the very least my subject right not only not only my child but my subject so you're going to step in and not only tell me how to parent this kid right you're 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 not only going to assert parental discipline over my head but you're also going to assert political exile over my head right what is the what exactly are you suggesting is the point of me then right so i guess since i guess in theory not only my parental authority but also my kingship is like a purely theoretical thing in your mind o valar then like whatever i'm not going to pretend anymore um that's a that's a kind of a plausible thing i think right mm-hmm. and so if the discussion between him and indus really is about um kingship and his role as king this can come out there right um basically if indus says you are the king it is your responsibility to act as the king and like what remember when of old you were the ambassador who was sent to valinor uh to um uh, you know to 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 be the representative of the people you know to be the the liaison between the valar and and our people like that should be your role again right our people are troubled uh there are many who are muttering against the valar many who disagree with what the valar have done and feel that you know that that feanor is being persecuted you know that uh, your son is being persecuted feanor himself could or sorry finway himself could earlier in the conversation voice that idea or suggest it um you know like people are saying this and i'm not sure they're wrong um and indus says then act like a king you know act like a statesman go to manway and and talk with him about this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then he can respond and be like no way like they've already made their choice the valar have already made their choice right um they instead of consulting with me uh and treating me like a king they have you know taken all the you know these you know these things into the into, maybe maybe melkor is right you know maybe we are you know merely the the you know the sort of the subject toys of the valar rather than the colleagues that we were led to believe we were going to be when we were brought in here in the first place um and Brian says that's totally the crybaby thing to do. Yes, exactly. Well, we I, again, I don't think we can get away from the fact that Finway makes a wrong decision and that ultimately the thing that he does is weak um, and and a little bit petulant. I just don't want it to look completely ludicrous, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I still want it to be understandable, right? I I, I want it. I, I want it to be plausible. You know, I don't know so much crybaby as prideful. Yes, right? yes, it, it, yes, exactly. There's there's like I. I'm sticking to my dignity, right? I'm I'm not right. going to abase myself and go cringing to the Valar and say like you like abrogated my authority, but I'm coming to you, sir, to say what should like could you please tell me mm-hmm. what I should do? I mean, it's it's you could make that speech sound good, right? So that he's he's like he's he's full of pride, a possibly not okay, more singly. Yeah, single certainly not a crybaby, yeah. and he does some pretty stupid stuff. Right. Um, right. Same same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, well, exactly, I'm, I'm Marie. We want the audience to see how it got there, but not to convince them that it's the right thing to do. Sorry, Dave. Right. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah. I, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I'm wondering if there's a way to do this to where 
it's 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 not even like it's not just a matter of showing him as a dignified but obviously wrong and prideful guy but like to make him to portray him as being perfectly you know at least from his point of view being perfectly justified so that at least right. so you know at least 50% of the people watching are like no you know that that yes he's doing the right thing this is a just protest because they did step right. on his toes and they did usurp his authority within you know where he's supposed to be king um you know and, and that it's that it's not just his people you know an incident among his people that they should and i guess one could make the argument that they're right that that they're that at least there's a there's a kernel of truth to that that really this should have been his um you know, he should have been the one to dispense justice in this situation. Right. Um, right. Not the least because not only is it his people, but it's it's his own kids. It's, his, own it's his kid. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, every standing that he has, you know, both private and public is being abrogated right. by the Valar in that move. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, and, and the, this this should be, this is in some sense evidence of the fact that, that, there's something not quite right going on here when they brought them, you know, they brought the elves over, but, but apparently not to let them live their own lives and kind of sort of do things as they see fit. Right. Yo, right. you come on right. over here. It'll be great. All you have to do is live exactly according to the rules that we unilaterally set for you. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's I wonder if that was that... made clear when they're talking right. to the ambassadors. <laughs> Everybody's not on the same page, right? Exactly. Yes. Oh, the, uh, honeymoon phase. You know, honeymoon phase. Exactly. That stuff never gets talked about during the honeymoon phase. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I like that. Now, so the question to me, the question of whether in this is invite. Wait, well, I can see. Yeah. I don't know who would say it. Who would say it? Maybe Manway Devardo. We should have had a contract. We should have done this. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we really should have made this a lot more explicit from the beginning. You know, like we should, uh, in, in retrospect, a written constitution might have been a really good idea. Might have been a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So, and, and, and I think, by the way, the, the actual question of uh, Indus's invitation to Formanos is not ultimately a real important one because, you know, Dave, as you were saying, this isn't like, he's going over to middle earth or something, right? He's not crossing an incrossable, an uncrossable divide. This is the country estate, right? So Indus presumably does not plan to, would not plan to live in Formanos anyway. She would just, she would come and go. She would be with her husband sometimes, and then she'd go back and be with her son sometimes. Um, it's Finway's choice to say, I'm going to Formanos and staying there would be the striking one, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the question then is not whether or not Feanor invites Indus to live with them, up at uh, up up at at Formanos, but whether she is like welcomed into the house, and I don't think he can keep her out of the house, um, even if he might not want her there. Um, but I think the this conversation between Indus and Finway should happen in Formanos because that can then lead us to uh, this gives us an uh, an opportunity for a conversation between Nerdanel and Feanor. Uh, he he can be like wanting to get rid of Indus. Like, I don't want that woman here. Um, and, and then Nerdanel and he can like have an argument about that. And, uh, you know, showing one way of showing the, uh, the increasing, te- you know, and 
basically this gives us an, uh, an opportunity for us to have a conversation between Nerd and Nell and Feanor, which includes her saying things of the sort of, like, are you even listening to yourself right now? Like, do, do, do you understand what you sound like? You know, do, uh, like the, the, the level of arrogance and self-absorption that you have now sunk to are really pretty striking, my husband, right? Um, you know, so that she can be starting to point in that direction, but he is, you know, less and less willing to hear it. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think, I, I think that that would all, that would all work, uh, that, that would all work well. So, okay. Um, uh, cool. So, um, yeah, and Karina's pointing out that we could have Finway saying things to Indus like, I won't be gone forever. I need more, you know, one-on-one time with him to talk him around. Karina, I absolutely think that that's Finway's other motivation. It's not just petulance against the Valar that's leading him to go off with Feanor. He genuinely believes he too Maybe tr- so. When she says this is the trouble that Muriel foresaw, he can be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I totally, I'm, I, I, I agree with you." And therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with him, and I'm going to try to talk him around, and I'm going to, I'm going to like he needs me, right? Um, and so he convinces himself that he can like do a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so anyway, I, I think I think that uh, that that can all work together. That can all work together really well. Um, let's talk about Melkor and Melkor's arrival. It's the last big thing that we need to talk about. So Melkor shows up. As I said, we don't even, he doesn't even have to know, Feanor doesn't even have to know that Melkor is on the lamb yet. Um, I think Melkor reveals it to him, right? Melkor shows up and in their conversation, Melkor's pitch is the Valar are making their move now. Right. Not only like first they banished you, now they're persecuting me too. Right. Um, and you know, and like you know, the horns of Orme and the footsteps of Tulkas are sounding in the distance. Right. Um, that like go check for yourself. Right. They're they're hunting me right now. You and I, Fanor. Right. We are alike. We are. We we need to be allies against the Valar. Um, it, they are moving, it's time for us to move and we should move together, right? That can be, so he reveals to them that they're on the land, um, that he's on the lamb. Um, but, you know, it's just an unjust I'm liking that, that's a good speech. We should, right? we should transcribe that. Yeah, you, you're pretty good Melkor. Melkor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love the idea, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's, that's a wonderful compliment. Um, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's I, I, I suppose it's like distressingly easy for me to fall into the mode of like overweening <laughs> arrogance and uh, thinking the whole world revolves around yourself. Um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so so I, I I love the idea that people suggest you know about how he he doesn't let him in right that we should have the that the, this this conversation needs to happen outside the gates. Um. And the and the fact that Feanor does not know about the condemnation or even about exactly what the Valar are saying about him makes that even stronger, right? It's not because he knows he's on the lamb that he doesn't invite him in, right? He doesn't invite him in just because he doesn't want to invite him in, just because he 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 doesn't like him because he sees him as a rival, right? Um, and that is sort of, uh, because this is a moment, right, where in a sense, Feanor's pride leads him to do the right thing. That is, rejecting Melkor is, in a sense, the right thing to do. Taking, you know, to, to, what defends Feanor from being bamboozled by Melkor's appeal 
is not necessarily Feanor's superior insight um, into, you know, that he sees through everything that Melkor is trying to do. It's his own pride, right? Right. So here's Melkor's pitch is you and I need to be allies. And instead, Feanor is looking at him and merely sees a rival. Right, right, and uh, and his own Feanor's own pride, uh, you know, rankles at the apparent pride of Melkor himself. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, right, Murray is saying it, it's he's it's not he he doesn't just feel that Melkor is a rival in a sense. It, it, it's it's exactly how he feels about him. Um, uh, so yeah, exactly. He he is so his pride, in a sense, saves you know leads him to do so. Once again, what do we have? Somebody doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, right? Exactly what we've been showing at various other points along the way. Therefore, establishing and that's that's pretty cool, right? So in his rejection of Melkor, Feanor establishes him. We establish Feanor as the parallel to Melkor, right? Um, and and like we see him like a parallel to Melkor and a parallel to the Valar as well, right? Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, um, and then and and he's then going to end up doing uh, doing the right thing. For, you could say that the returning of the Noldor to Middle Earth is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, anyway, anyway, um, I. Yeah, yeah. Um, the his his uh, and and I agree. Several of you are talking about lines that he wants to keep. Mary, of course, several people voiced the idea on the discussion boards that we should keep. We we have to keep the jail crow of Mandos line, which I totally agree. That's an awesome line. Um, one of the one of the challenges that I have with that, though, I have to admit, that line is an awesome line. But it's not exactly transparent as lines go. That is, it's an awesome line, but it's a line that I think is easy to misunderstand. Um, but I would hate to do the kind of... You know the kind of thing that happens in film adaptations where they quote a thing from the book almost exactly, except they dumb it down, right? They, like, explain it, or <laughs> you know, in the course of... They change it so as to make its... It's meaning, and that always kind of annoys me, and I really don't want to do that with the Jail Crow of Mandos line, and yet I do kind of feel like that line sort of needs a gloss, because what it does mean, what I believe it means, when he's, he's calling him the Jail Crow of Mandos, he's mocking him for having been the prisoner of the Valar, right? You know, what he's saying is like, don't you come to me like uh, um, you are a peer, of the other, you know, like you are, the, there's you on the one side and the Valar on the other side. Like the two of you are equal and opposing forces. Like, in a, in a sense, what he's implying is like, wait a second, hang on, Melkor, weren't you like the abject slave of those people? Didn't they completely kick your butt? Aren't you actually a groveling weakling? And didn't you beg for mercy before the feet of Manway? As I recall, that's kind of how it happened, isn't it, Melkor? Right, so don't you talk to me? Don't you get all high and mighty with me? Right, um. So when he calls him you jail crow of Mandos, he's insulting him. Right, he's like you. You uh, you're you may not still be wearing the stripy suit just now, Melkor. Right, but you do not have the stay. He's he's he is uh, he's challenging his status. Right. Um. Don't so act. Here's to a really like, cheap 
way to do that. Here's a cheesy yeah. way. So he finishes his conversation with, with Melkor. He goes back inside, and Nerdanel or, or, or Indus says, so how'd it go? Well, I called him a jail crow Mandos. Mandos. What does that mean? <laughs> right, what does that mean? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, the best way to do it would be to have him say that, have like a reaction from Melkor, and then have him follow it up, not to explain it explicitly, but to just like basically continue to say the same thing in more words, essentially. Right, um, right. You know, like to... to Similar to, to what you were just saying. Right, exactly. Exactly. Except for the stripy um, suit, you're leave that. We'll leave that out. Yeah, not the stripy suit, right? Exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, essentially like what he can say. It's like, well, you know, if they're after you, you better start running because, like, they kicked your butt once and they're going to kick your butt again. You are nothing. You are nobody. You're not even a fit. You are beneath me. Right. You want me to you say you want me to be your ally. I see through that and I see you really want me to be your lackey. But like you are totally unworthy. Right. And you you're you're just like it's so again, what he criticizes him for is not being evil. Right. It's not him seeing through Melkor morally. What he's saying is like you're a joke, Melkor. Right. Um, And the thing is. They don't understand. And that's something that I think Tolkien emphasizes in that awesome sentence when, uh, when at the end of that conversation, um, Feanor slams the door in the face of the mightiest creature of Arda, right? You know, like the way that Tolkien phrases that to emphasize the like ludicrous disproportion, like Feanor, like congratulations, Feanor, you just slammed the door in the face of the most powerful being in the world, Right. But the whole point is the contrast between Melkor as he really is, in fact, the most powerful single being in the entire world, and Melkor as Feanor is Melkor, and Melkor as Feanor is treating him in that moment, right? As Feanor sees him in that moment. That's what's at stake for Feanor in that conversation, right? In a sense. It's not about like, are you a good guy or a bad guy? In a sense, Feanor doesn't even care, right? That's not what's at stake. What's at stake is who are you anyway, right? Um, you're not like this desirable ally. You're not like the captain of the opposing forces to the Valar, um, with you know the Valar doing questionable things and you being the one standing up for justice and right, going to help me, you know. Yeah. But um, uh, but he, how Fanor's wrong. Melkor is, in fact, the most powerful creature in all Middle Earth, right, or in all of Arda, right, um, and. Um, and but but of course, Marie, as you're reminding us, we do need to get around his desire for the Silmarils. And yes, that is uh, he does see through that, right? And that, of course, in the conversation in the book, is the tipping point, right? Um, and that's that's where I think so. We do need to show Fanor's own pride in his condemnation of Melkor and his belief that Melkor is is. Um, uh, you know, basically like unworthy of being his ally, right? But more importantly, what he does see through is that Melkor is selfishly motivated, right? Um, and he doesn't even have to do the advanced math. He doesn't even have to sit there and say, okay, wait, if Melkor is lying to me here, if he's trying to manipulate me just so that because he wants the Silmarils for himself, that means that everything he said all along has been this continuous course of manipulation and he's been leading the Noldor down the wrong path all along. I don't think Feanor does that math. That, that final step. Yeah. Um, I agree. Uh, though, 
maybe Nerdanel does. Oh yeah, I like that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. There should mm-hmm. be at least somebody doing that math on screen. Yes, and maybe she, maybe we show her. Nerdanel should totally be listening, right? I don't think we need to make that conversation into a three-way conversation because, of course, especially if Nerdanel was hanging out with Melkor, right, and doing like you know. Uh, Smithcraft projects with him and stuff, and learning from him, as we were suggesting before. If she has been, if she has been in the past his proponent, um, we don't. Uh, I think if we bring her in, it, it will. T- it totally changes the dynamics of the conversation in ways that we don't want, because then yeah. he's going to be appealing to her. He would be appealing to her, and she would be, you know, arguing in another way. I think we want to keep that a two-way conversation, but we have her listening, right? Maybe she's up on the wall, right? They're out in front of the gates. Um, Melkor, he keeps Melkor outside and he comes out of his gates, Fanor comes out of his gates to talk to him. I think that Nerdano, at least, and maybe Finway as well, are both up, up on the walls listening to the conversation. Um, but yeah, so Nerdano hears this and she does the math, right? Um, uh, and whether she talks about that in today's episode, you know, in episode 13 or 11, or whether she saves, or whether this only comes out later on. I don't know, but um, I, I kind of think later on because I think I kind of think this episode has to end with the gate being slammed in the face of of Melkor and him running off, right? Uh, really, really mad. Um, and in a sense, that maybe that oh yeah, I like that. That's the first open the first open hint we give to the viewers. Like we we've never yet shown them a behind like a a like one of those. Richard the Third moments, right, where yeah, Melkor yeah. turns to the audience and reveals that he still is the same evil guy we saw in season one, right? Maybe Fanor slams the door and his face changes, right? And all of a sudden he looks, for the first time since season one, like the tyrant of Utumno again, right? right. Um, and we see his, like, rage as he, like, you know, whirls and uh, and and storms off. Um, and Maybe Nerdanel sees that. Maybe we don't even need to make her see that. But you know, we just like give the viewers a glimpse of this, so that uh, you know their their the suspicions are being confirmed. Um, but we, we don't yet. So we don't yet show his plans or anything. But right. um, but I think that um, it'll make it'll make it, it'll sort of increase Nerdanel's um, credibility in the eyes of the viewers. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Yes. Oh, Marie, that's wonderful. Marie has the excellent suggestion that we save Nerdanel processing that information and doing that math for the next episode when Fanor decides whether or not to accept the Valar's invitation to the feast. That's the perfect opportunity, Marie. I agree. I agree. Um, that's brilliant. Okay. Um, cool. Cool. Awesome. Um, uh, uh, Good. I think did, did, that covers most things we wanted to cover, doesn't it? Is there anything else we wanted to talk about? I think that's that's pretty much that's pretty much it, right? Because we're not going to get the invitation to the festival. The invitation to the festival should happen next time, because yep. that begins with this is why I was arguing we wait for the Valar's point of view until episode twelve, because episode twelve, in some sense, ha- we have to show the Valar's perspective because we're going to get the feast. Right, the whole like the cell of the 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 whole, whole reconciliation thing that's going to be happening, um, 
is motivated by the Valar's desire to bring reconciliation, right? Um, so that's the moment where I want to bring in the Valar trying to make nice, right? Um, so I th- that's where I think we start episode 12, and then we have them, you know, deliver their strong invitation to Feanor, um, as he indeed is commanded to attend. Um, um, but that's obviously a conversation that needs to happen, you know, the conversation between Aonwe and, and, uh, and Feanor. Uh, when he's commanded to come to the festival. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so um, so, so that's, that, that stuff's all going to happen next time, um, and we're good. Yeah, we end up with slamming the door in, 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 in Melkor's face. Anything else we want to do? I mean, do we spend this entire episode in Formanos? Do we, do, do we need anything back in Tyria? Is no. there anything that we need to do with the third generation? How about the kids? The Feanorians. Well, I, mean, Feanor I suggested the Fingolfin. I suggested the Fingolfin conversation with his mom before she goes to Formanos. Okay, right. A conversation between Indus and Fingolfin Indus makes a certain amount Fingolfin. of sense. Yeah. Questioning yeah. why she's going and whatever. Um, I don't know if we're going to have time for <laughs> for the third generation in this show. Um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of tempting to have the entire episode happen at Formanos. I mean, that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it is a little bit tempting to go back and show, like, meanwhile, what's going on with Fingolfin, you know, what are, what are you know, to, to, to do, as you were suggesting, conversation between Indus and Fingolfin. Um, I mean, I can see all that. But I sort of artistically, I like the idea of having, a, um, of having it... Um, Especially if we did do it, I mean, I, I, I know we're not going to, but especially if we did do it, like Dave was saying, showing it from different people's points of view, like right. the same scene from different people's right. points of view. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we wouldn't be depicting the same scene, but what we would be doing is episode 12 would give us the opportunity to show the Tyrion point of view on the whole banishment issue. Right. right? Um, Tyrion and Valmar point of view, right? So not only what are the Valar thinking about this, but what is what are Fingolfin and the other Noldor thinking about this, right? That can be a thing that we do in episode in the beginning of episode twelve as well. Um, and they all, of course, can have a very different perspective on Feanor's banishment um, than Feanor or Finway have. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So, Marie says, um, Feanor's kids should all be there in Formanos, and I'm fine with that, especially if Nardanel is there as well. There's no reason not to have the entire Feanorian family out there. <clears throat> Marie asks, does uh, does Kelgorm still go hunting with Orme? Um, does Fingen come visit Mithras? Does Mithras go visit Fingen uh, in Tyrion? Um Good questions. Mithros and Fingen certainly give us a good opportunity to, if we want to keep all the scenes in Formanos, we would have to have, we could have Fingen coming out. To, if we have Indus coming out to visit, why can't we have Fingen coming out to visit? Um, uh, can we, can we have, uh, I, I certainly want to put in a vote for a, um, uh, a gratuitous shot of Huan lying around in Formanos looking miserable, right? Uh, yeah. That would be awesome. Yep. That would be great. Yeah. That's a, that's a, 
I think the more um, the more Huan just gratuitous shots we have, the better. Gratuitous shots of Huan, exactly. Yeah, Huan's non Huan's running nonverbal commentary on the entire show. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can just yeah yeah you can whatever your interpretation. Yeah, that's true. We can we can make it clear what's what what what's really going on just by Huan's nonverbal reaction. When he's yes, just like exactly when he's just collapsed on the ground in a depressed heap, we'll know. Oh, jeez. <laughs> right. Yes. Who on lying listlessly with that kind of depressed and dejected looks that dogs are so good at, you know, on his face. Yeah. Uh, but you know, by the fire, uh, while while you know, Nerdano and Fanor are arguing. Yeah. Totally has to happen. Or you um, could be like a husky. You know how huskies do. Oh, like they're talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Huan, I'm imagining now like Huan's reaction to like Fingon setting off to uh, to uh, to go rescue Mithros and and all. You know, yeah. There, yeah. there, there are lots of things we can get Huan's how about, commentary. Uh, how about yeah. uh, uh, the shot where they're um, they're storming out of their audience with the Valar uh, to depart from Foranos? We we watch kind of the train of um, of. Uh, Finway's circle, his family and stuff, and then like coming up right behind uh, Kelligorm is like Huan, and he kind of just looks at the camera and rolls his eyes. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah. Here we go. Yes, showing the uh, uh, showing the 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 you know, the progression, the long scale progression of the relationship between Huan and Kelligorm and the Feanorians, right? From, from enthusiastic partnership and devotion to disappointment, to forbearance, to ultimately rejection. Um, yeah, absolutely. It does. It is interesting. You know, it is interesting that it's supposed to start as enthusiastic partnership, but if you start imagining him in these particular scenes early on, you're like, Actually, it seemed it would it would you would imagine things would have started going you know going like you would imagine he would start becoming really he must be incredibly patient like yes right exactly well that's but it's it's the kind of spirit that would manifest itself as a hound must be like right very patient very faithful that's that's his nature that's why he chose that form right Right. Um, so yes, yes, he would be very, very, very patient. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Can we, can we use uh, Huan as a character who regularly breaks the fourth wall? Looks <laughs> <laughs> into the camera and does a doggy eye roll. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the... <laughs> I don't know if we want him breaking the fourth wall, but I do like <laughs> the idea of having like uh, Huan's demeanor as interpretive cue to our audience on every occasion. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> this is how you should be feeling, right? This now. is how you should be feeling about this scene. However, and, and we never draw attention to it, right? Because in fact, right. like until, except for people who already know the story of Baron and Luthien, he's just going to be. A, maybe we don't even name him. He's just like the random dog right yeah. um uh, but uh, but but like that so people wouldn't know that they would that they should be paying such close attention to the random all we need is just him in the background right like so right. You know, i see like you know i i <clears throat> him standing behind nerdanel wagging his tail right 
you know, uh, uh, when Nordanelle is making her impassioned plea to, to Feanor, right? Um, so, like, we, you know, we have, like, the clear cue to our, well, not the super clear cue, but the cue to our audience, right? Um, you should be siding with her, like, like, like who on the hound is. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, so this is, uh, okay. Solid. So now we have, we have, we have Tom Bombadil at least once a season and we have who on, I don't even, we don't have to have him once an episode, but you know, I, I think he, we he need to have be a, enough of a character to, I mean, we see him frequently enough that we recognize it. Right. I mean, that's yeah, how. Yeah. I think that like, unless we're in places, like if we're in places where there are Feanorians, we've got to get who on in at least minimum every third episode. Right. He's got to, he's got to be there in the background. Right. Right. Other than in the places, of course, where we know the Feanorians are not, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, glad we're agreed on this. Um, uh, very good. Uh, anything else? I think, I think that's, um, so yeah, that means if we do stick entirely to Formanos, it means there are a bunch of things we can't do, like any more of the other third generation elves, like no more Galadriel, no more, you know, Turgon. What, what, what are we ending the season on? Are we ending the season on the departure? We're ending this. No, we're ending the season on the uh, the the destruction of the trees and the thieves' quarrel between ah. Ungoliant and Melkor. Um, right. So do we uh, have? Because yeah. we have two more episodes, right? To that. Two more That's... episodes. Yeah. So I mean, just like the brief outline of where we're headed is the you know the feast, uh, right? The 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 celebration and the the attempt of reunion uh, there uh, and Fingolf and swearing. His oath, you know, his his allegiance to to Feanor, uh, there, <clears throat> and then Melkor meeting up with Ungoliant and laying his plans, and then the actual darkening and the theft of the Silmarils and the struggle between Ungoliant and and Melkor. Right. Okay. Um, yes, and uh, uh, Marie is saying, "You will lead, I will follow." Exactly. Um, and Marie, make a note of this: "I will follow." is a great episode title for episode 12. Don't you think that, 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 that could be really good. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. So questions for next questions time. For next week. Questions yeah. for next time. Right. First, um, the Valar. Okay. So are we, do, 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 do we agree that that's going to be the moment where we're going to, and how much do we do? Do we go back? Do we do a, a flashback with the Valar right to the, to their deliberations and their, you know, the, the, the revel, their, their understanding, their comprehension that Melkor is screwing this up and has broken his parole and then Tolkien's taking off. Do we, do we do that? Do we just have them talking about it? Right. Do we have a, a conversation between the Valar about what happened? Or do we actually go back and do a flashback? So um, how do we handle that? How much of their deliberations do we show? Um, uh, and, and, and so what and how do we do that? That's, that's, that's topic number one. Topic number two, Fingolfin and Feanor. Um, how do we handle the reconciliation between Fingolfin and Feanor? Um, what do we, even if we keep the lines... What do they? What is the significance of them? What action? What business is happening here in the character of Fingolfin and the character of Feanor? Um, we need to think about what that scene means to each one of them. What it means to Feanor. What it means to Fingolfin. And how do we convey what both of those things in that moment? 
We're also, of course, going to have to think about that scene that we already talked about, about Feanor's being commanded to attend, right? So we're going to have that scene with Aonwe and Feanor and Nerdanel and Finway that we're going to have to cope with, right? And who on? Um, so uh, we're going to, we need to, we need to, we need to do that. Um, the, so the Valar, Fingolfin and Feanor, and then third, Melkor and, Ingol- and Ungoliant. Is this then the moment where we do the big reveal? Do we finally show, do, is this where we get, because I think it may be where we do finally a backstage scene with Melkor where he's like, now I shall bring my plans to fulfillment. Yeah. It is now time to, yeah. uh, to, to flip the switch and take the aggressive yeah. and take the offensive. And, and he goes and seeks out Ungoliant. Right. Does that, so I'm thinking the meeting with Ungoliant has to happen because we, we're going to have plenty to do in episode 13. Yeah. Um, he's going to have to meet with Ungoliant there. Uh, so, so what do we want to do in that scene? How do we do Ungoliant? Um, we've already introduced Ungoliant in season one, but you know, how are we going to handle her uh, and her depiction there? So, um, so those are the topics for next time. The Valar, how and what, how much do we do with them and how do we, how do we handle it? Um, Fingolfin and Fanor, what are they thinking and what are they, how are they motivated and how do we depict that? And then Melkor, how do we do his meeting with Ungoliant? What's her, how do we depict her motivations and how much do we reveal about his plans and, and uh, you know, how do we handle pulling back? So if we do that, then this means like we're pulling back all the curtains. We're shifting, we're, we're shifting away from the Noldor point of view in, on both sides, both with Melkor and with the Valar in episode 12, right? Um, so anyway, we got, we, uh, I want to, how do we, uh, how do we do this? <laughs> you don't handle Ungoliant, she handles you, Karita says. Well, see, there we are. So, okay. So those are the things the way, for discussion for next time. Happy yes, birthday, happy birthday, Karita. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's your birthday today, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Um, uh, very good. Any final thoughts, questions, ideas from either one of you? No, except Ungoliant's no. going to be really exciting. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, this is obviously Ungoliant's big moment, right? So, Wait, so no, you know, we, we, we cast Ungoliant last time. Now we should cast whoever's going to be the one to wear all the little ping pong balls for the CGI. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like so, like we like actually have to recruit a giant spider to put ping pong balls on. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, Circus made his name doing Gollum. I mean, we could actually have an actor actually make their name playing. Well, let's play. Are you kidding? Let's I just think cast it has to just be Andy Circus again. Let's just cast Andy Circus exactly. We'll cast Andy Circus as motion capture Ungoliant. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Clearly. Must, must right. be yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> also, Andy Circus will also do the motion capture for the um, Finn Golfin versus Morgoth battle right that's true <laughs> and go. for uh and for uh uh, uh the eagles yeah you know when they can when they come in and exactly actually, basically you know, Cumberbatch and, acquitted himself pretty well as smog too you yes. know so there is that i mean yeah. he was not yeah. bad so yeah marie says that spiders don't really move like humans at all i know but marie we're talking about andy circus here though so right it's fine yeah, it's Andy Circus doesn't right. like humans either. <laughs> exactly, it's Andy Circus. So it's obviously whom you call when you need to make a giant spider. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, I am. I am kidding about that. Okay, all right. So very good.
Good. I think we are all set for next time. Thanks for a really fun discussion, joining us for a really fun discussion today. And as always, thank you for listening and Godspeed.